0: Hey hey, welcome to Peripheral Thinking, a series of conversations with entrepreneurs, advisors, activists and academics intending to inspire inspire you with ideas from the margins, the periphery, because that's where the ideas which will shape tomorrow are hiding today, on those margins, the periphery. This week I spoke to Graham Boyd. Graham is an entrepreneur, a startup founder and innovation manager. He has extensive experience leading businesses and is driven to make a difference through innovation that enables business and people to do more with less friction. How good does that sound? Uh, In this episode we talk about his book Rebuild, The Economy, Leadership and You which is described as a toolkit for builders of a better world, people like you. I hope you enjoy. Graham, welcome to
1: Peripheral Thinking. Only a pleasure, Ben. Thank you for inviting me. Most welcome. Most welcome.
0: Now, I could, as I mentioned in, uh, as we were sort of talking a little bit before re- recording, I, I actually came across you. You were on another of our guests, Mark Anielski's podcast, uh, and you were talking about all sorts of very kind of inspiring ideas around kind of regenerative businesses and how how we kind of function well in these sort of crazy complex times that we live in. But I think you, you were talking about your new book, on uh, Mark's podcast, uh, and I was kind of—I don't know—is it how new is it? So it's
1: been out on the shelves, the virtual shelves of online bookstores for almost eighteen months now. So it's it's newish, but not brand new. And uh, it's called "Rebuild the Economy: Leadership in You," and it's written as a toolkit. For anybody who's trying to build a better world, especially for people who are trying to use business as a force for good, in particular, to build regenerative or net positive businesses. So anybody who's reading Paul Polman's book, Net Positive, would be well served by reading this book immediately afterwards as a toolkit on how to actually put into practice in an anti-fragile way. Many of the things that Paul, for example, talks about in his book. And so
0: just going back to uh, sort of basics, when when you talk about sort of regenerative businesses or
1: kind of net positive, what do we sort of mean by that? I look at regenerative very broadly. For me, something is regenerative when it increases every single capital that it touches. And that that spans you know, all of the the six classes of capitals, say, in the integrated reporting initiative. I'm not just talking about natural capital. I'm also talking about the human capitals, as well as things like manufactured capital and financial capital.
0: And so you sort of talk in the book, you, as your, your, kind of, your subheader sort of uh, points out, there's sort of the three aspects of this. There's the you, or me, or the individual. There's the organisation. And then there's the economy. And I think the, the subheader goes the other way around, doesn't it? The economy, the organisation, and the individual. But does the book follow that thread? Or does
1: it start with me out? So that was a big question that Jack and I wrestled with whilst writing the book. And we ended up putting it into the order of the title. So we begin with the economy, then we deal with the individual, and we end with the organization. And we originally had it the individual first, then the organization, and then the economy. At at the end, we said to ourselves, and we've explicitly written this in the preface, no order can possibly be correct for three elements that are deeply interrelated and in many senses have a circular relationship with each other so because of the constraints of publishing uh, the book is linear but please read the book in whatever order appeals to you best.
0: So if we were going to do a, a sort of little sort of explanation of it, where would you think is a, is a good place to start for the telling of the story?
1: So would say for the context of this conversation, where we began, and given the context that we're living in in the moment, right now people are extremely aware of just how uncertain the world is. You know, Whatever people were predicting for this week, three weeks ago, is probably completely irrelevant for the world we're dealing with right now. And I was certainly, I'm sure you were, everybody listening to this, took decisions three weeks ago based on the world that they thought they would be living in today. And we're now living in a very different world. So This is one of the central themes of the book, which is that the world is actually far more volatile, uncertain and complex than most of us are easily able to deal with, know how to deal with, and are willing to accept. And the question is, if you truly are living in a world that has inherent uncertainty, inherent complexity that is irreducible, that is, in a sense, has very large, unknowable swathes. And this is a concept that you'll find in religions, but we've lost in today's Western world. This awareness that whatever you're looking at, holding, dealing with, It has a knowable component and an unknowable component. And yes, the knowable component, you can codify that. You can put in place best practices or at least good practices. You can get it under control, etc., etc. But whatever is inherently unknowable, you can't. And you're wasting your time and effort if you try to put time and effort into getting to know what is inherently unknowable. Instead, you need to deal with the unknowable in ways that are appropriate for what is inherently unknowable. So where this boils down to, if you go to business school or if you study economics, the way that economists and business school people are taught to deal with uncertainty is based on a few big assumptions, which Mm -hmm actually don't apply in the real world we're living in. And because of this, in the West, we've become more and more enamored of the idea that we're independent of each other, our businesses are independent of each other. We can just take decisions in a simplistic way. And one of the big themes in the book is that this is simply not true in a world that is, well, first of all, it's simply not true. We're not as disconnected as we like to believe. And secondly, the bigger the unknowable components of the world we're living in, the bigger the uncertainty and vulnerability, the more harmful this myth becomes to us. So, if you're a Running a small business, even more so if you're running an individual freelance operation and you're trying to run it in isolation, disconnected from everybody else, where you're looking at the entire world as a competitive jungle. Your job is to win by beating everybody else around you. That's actually setting you up to fail. I I like to say there's a big difference between winning and succeeding. Winning is about beating the other person. Succeeding is about, well, succeeding. And you can quite happily succeed in ways where everybody succeeds. Succeeding does not imply somebody else losing. And if, if you go back and you look at how the guilds worked in centuries past, or if you look at how A Japanese Keiretsu, the Japanese conglomerate works, or in fact, if you look at how any large multinational works, if you look at Procter and Gamble, in all of these instances, your ability to live, to succeed, was being taken care of by a balanced mixture of what you did individually as an individual member of the guild. Or as an individual brand in Procter Gamble, and collectively, what the Guild did as a whole to take care of people when bad luck happens, when something unpredictable emerges. Or in the case of Procter Gamble, if you take the past two years of COVID, your, your job in PNG is covered by the money coming into PNG as a whole. It doesn't really matter whether the brand you're working on has taken off massively because of COVID has increased the amount of money people are spending on home care products or has plummeted because the amount of money that men are spending on male grooming products has diminished to zero. Yeah. So, so many men over the past two years have reduced their shaving frequency down to perhaps once a week or not at all. <laughs> So poor Gillette razor blades has not done nearly as well as perhaps was in P&G's forecasting six months into 2019 before COVID-19 arrived on the horizon. So what all of this means is that the way that we used to work with each other, the way that we still work with each other when it comes to things like raising a child. It takes a village to raise a child. All of these things are actually deeply true in business. And this is one of the reasons why we're having so many problems today with environmental degradation, climate change, and all of these things. We've bought into the myth that economists have imposed on us, neoclassical e- economists, which is that. Only pure competition is right. Everything else is wrong. And that's a myth that has emerged because economists basically don't understand statistics. So I'll take a slight detour. The statistics that everybody is taught in business school and economics is only valid if everything is completely independent of everything else. As soon as there are connections that approach to statistics is fundamentally not valid. So if you take a decision in your life personally today, the effects of that decision multiplies everything else that happens in your life. And it multiplies because your life is one connected flow of life from birth to death, from multiple lives before birth to multiple lives after death depending on your belief system, the whole paradigm of karma, for example, is simply saying that your lives are connected with each other. And so in a world where actually what we're dealing with are connected processes through time, rather than just completely disconnected events where you can swap one event out for another without any restrictions on that, In a world that is multiplicative, we cannot use the statistics that we're taught at university to estimate in an uncertain world, what choices to make to give us a good probability of success. What that turns into is that using the wrong ways of estimating what are the likely outcomes of a choice you might make in an uncertain world, means that we are seriously underestimating the risks of losing and overestimating the probability of gaining a benefit. And at an individual scale, that means that we intuitively realize that we have to build up a much bigger pile of cash in order to survive at an investor scale It means that investors have to chase significantly better returns from their portfolio because of all of the loss that's happening. And at a global scale, it means that we have to use significantly more natural resources and human resources to deliver a certain level of success. So basically, we're holding up a cup and trying to keep it full of What we need to thrive, not noticing that the cup has holes in it at the bottom and it's leaking like a sieve. And so we're ending up putting 10 times more into it just to maintain the level than we would need. The way around that is through connection and collaboration, recognizing that we're connected, that if I am running a company that is internet-based and that has generated a huge profit over the past two years because of COVID, that's not for any other reason than I was on in one of the lucky arenas when this unpredictable thing called COVID arrived. And another company that was involved in, for example, travel, that ended up hemorrhaging and going bankrupt during COVID, it wasn't because of any lack of ability in the business that they lost all of that. It was simply because COVID hit the stage when it hit the stage. And it's something that whilst, yes, it was predictable that COVID would come at some point, nobody could predict exactly when. Nobody could predict it would start exactly in this month and plan in their business strategy appropriately. So the way to to do this is to simply look at how nature works, how villages used to work, recognizing that almost everything that comes our way is unknowable until it's here. And the way to deal with unknowability is through collaboration, through sharing. And that's that's one of the big essences of the book. It's absolutely clear when you do the maths, if we build businesses this way, we eliminate many of the losses in business, and it gives us exactly what we need to deliver full regeneration across all of the capitals, including financial capital.
0: Uh, It's really interesting you sort of talking about this, the need, because of, because of how it sort of plays out, the need to have much more available or available cash than we typically have. And I kind of was thinking about my own experience of looking at or you know, writing and looking at lots of business plans, for example, or any sort of plan in whether running my own business or in, in people kind of running businesses that I'm involved with. Just the idea that everything takes maybe three times longer than you think it's going to take. And it costs you twice the amount that you think it's going to cost. So this kind of sort of just sort of intuitively we kind of have this kind of this sort of insight that things take longer and cost more and you're also kind of then pointing to the fact that there is a, a sort of an underlying sort of statistical thing which means that I also need to have more available money which is kind of pointing I guess to why that's happening
1: Exactly this is the thing it's perfectly clear that if you simply apply the kind of approach that all business leaders economists are being taught so that the numbers that come out, if in a, an uncertain world you want to have a company that is growing at 5%, then you actually need to target an 83% growth rate in order to actually grow at 5% in one of the parameters of the simulation I set. And, that, and that's huge. You want to grow at 5% and to compensate for the misunderstanding of how things work in a connected, uncertain world, to grow at 5%, you need to target an 83% growth rate. That 77 percentage points difference is what's needed to take care of all of the losses that we've built into how we design our business structures and operations.
0: And those losses, is that um, sort of a considerable part of that? Is that about
1: the, the role of luck? Yes, yes. It's this interplay between unpredictable context drivers have a much bigger role to play in business than we like to think. That's the one side of it. And that's been well studied by a UK economist, Paul Ormerod, who wrote a brilliant book about 10 years ago now, why things fail. And he looked at data from business failure, looking back more than a 100 years, and at everything from small enterprises through to multinationals, and he then tried to fit that data with all kinds of different hypotheses for why things fail. The only hypothesis that actually fits the data is random fortune. Basically, the equations of evolution where things change because of random events, cosmic rays, whatever, those are the only equations that fit the data for business failure. And the essence of his conclusion is: yes, the quality of your leaders, the quality of your operations, do you have operational excellence, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera, all of that is important. But sooner or later, something comes in that could not have been predicted, and it's that which causes the business to fail. So that's the one side, is this whole space of unpredictability. And the other side, as I was saying, is that economists and business leaders, in order to steer their businesses in an unpredictable context, the way that they're taught to choose between options is wrong. Because... That way of choosing between options of calculating likely outcomes only works if the world is disconnected, whereas the world we're living in is actually deeply connected.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's kind of, it's interesting, because obviously, this sort of goes against, okay, on the one hand, like you say, what's sort of taught at business school, but it, and also, if I think about then just on a sort of day-to-day basis for people running smaller businesses, where we may not think we're making decisions based on a sort of statistical kind of return. A lot of it is kind of intuitive. A lot of it is reacting in the moment. You know, yes, there might be some sort of uh, support mechanisms or matrices we might use to help consider whether an opportunity is worth pursuing or not. Some of those things might be financial, some of them not kind of financial, but essentially it kind of, you know, a lot of it is sort of intuitive. But this kind of idea that actually so much about how we talk about business, whether in small or large, is this illusion of control, essentially, that we're putting in place, we've got goals, we've got this, you know, we we have ways of operating, which is lending an illusion of control, which, you know, I guess what you're pointing to is just an illusion, essentially. And the more that we embrace the idea that that is an illusion, it then kind of opens up the possibility of, okay, if that is an illusion, what do we do about it?
1: Yes, exactly. And that's the thing. This is what humanity has known from the beginning of time. It's it's in many ways only relatively recent, this idea that we can control everything. And if we're not able to control everything, then we just need to try a bit harder to get it under control. If you go back a few hundred years or thousands of years, you go to the wisdom traditions of any of the, let's say, groupings that have preserved their ancient wisdom traditions, there are a whole bunch of behaviors that are coming from a whole bunch of clarity that much of what happens is not in human control. And whether you're an atheistic physicist like me, who simply ascribes that to natural randomness and uh, in inherent complexity or you follow any of the faith beliefs or whatever whether you attribute it to a god or the spirits or whatever all of those traditions are saying there are a whole bunch of things that are unknowable therefore inherently can never be controlled and so how do we what behaviors should we adopt? What practices should we have in order to succeed in a world that is inherently unknowable and out of control? And the essence of that is at the heart of what has made humanity succeed so well for so long on the planet, which is we're able to collaborate. Collaboration is our biggest Enabler of success and of thriving in a world that is inherently strongly unknowable and out of control. And when I say collaboration, that means practical collaboration. It means things like if I'm running an apple farm and one year I have an amazing apple harvest, quite likely the next year I will have an absolutely lousy apple harvest. But the year that I do have a brilliant apple harvest, I share a certain amount of my windfall with everybody else in the village. And knowing that the next year when my apple harvest is absolutely lousy, possibly somebody else will have a superb, I invent something, maybe a grain harvest or a cow harvest. And I know that because we're operating as one village, rather than as 1,000 independent families that don't share with each other. Whoever in the village has good fortune that year, shares enough of that good fortune for the whole village to make it through to the next year. And in an uncertain world, whilst one person is at extreme risk of either making it really big or going bankrupt completely when that's connected across the whole village moves relatively stably. So that's really at the heart of it. And that means, for instance, in a small business context, if you're running a small business and you structure yourself like the guilds of old, where you have, for instance, something that says you put 10% of your profit Above a certain minimum internal threshold, if 10% of those extra winnings go into a collective pot in the guild, and every year that pot is distributed equally between all businesses, then that means that no business is going to go bankrupt simply because bad luck happened. And that means that if my business has good luck this year and I put that money into the pot, will I get a little bit of it back? If all of the businesses have good luck that year, then we net out at the same. But if one of those businesses has bad luck, or if half of those businesses have bad luck, this pot means that they stay alive for another year. And the next year, they might have good luck and I have bad luck. And then their money helps me stay alive for another year. And it's this reciprocal swings of ups and downs of good and bad luck, by systemically connecting the swings so they balance out, then the consequences of the upswings and downswings don't cross that threshold of bankruptcy where you're kicked out of the game. So much of our thinking assumes that life operates the way a football match does. You have a whistle The ball is kicked for the first time and after a set amount of time another whistle blows and the game is ended and that defines whether you've won or lost. Life, business, these are not finite games with a set beginning and end. These are infinite games with no beginning and no end. The statistics of infinite games is different. What you need to do to succeed in an infinite game where winning is irrelevant because there's no end. Whistle. What you need to do to succeed there is fundamentally different.
0: Within your village, metaphorical or otherwise, given I guess we're talking about metaphorical villages, really, is it important to have a diverse range of businesses or should you be, you know, is it okay to be? Because, you know, one of the references you gave earlier, a good friend of mine runs a travel business, like you say. So over the last two years, kind of horrific sort of time, they're just sort of coming out now, managed to kind of hold on. But, you know, a guild of travel businesses, is that, uh, is that the kind of right way to go or should there be sort of diversity in there?
1: Well, again, Nature is our best source of inspiration here. If you talk to anybody in the permaculture world, they'll say to you that an entire farm of only one variety of wheat is highly fragile. Yes, if you have an entire farm of wheat and you have a little bit of a drainage problem in one corner of the farm and it gets flooded and all of the wheat there dies out, You're protected against that kind of issue, but you're far better off if you have something that is as diverse as the diversity in any old-growth rainforest. That's your best protection. Or if you have something like a Procter & Gamble or a Unilever, where you have such completely diverse business units all within one organization... It, it really doesn't matter for any individual employee's survival whether a business unit lives or dies. If a certain business unit goes out of fashion because, for example, all men stop shaving, so Gillette goes bankrupt because nobody needs razor blades anymore, there's going to be another brand that takes off precisely because of that. Maybe facial shampoo specially designed for beards. So the, the, the short answer is the more diversity, the better. And again, this is one of the things where investors haven't quite got what an ecosystem really means, because in the investment world, there's much thinking that an ecosystem is a group of businesses more or less in the same field, whereas actually an ecosystem of businesses is a set of businesses that are highly diverse,
0: Is size of organisations important within that? Do we all need to be of a similar size?
1: That's a very interesting question. There, There are two parts to your question. The first part is when you're starting up the ecosystem and the second part is when it's a mature ecosystem. When you're starting up the ecosystem, it's going to be far easier if all of the businesses are approximately the same size. Because what you need to build is you need to build connections between businesses. And that means two things. You need to build mechanisms for businesses to share profit with each other. And secondly, you need to build in mechanisms for businesses to engage in governance with each other. It's all very well for you and me to agree that at the end of every year, we will share between us 10% of each of our excess profit. But if the only thing that is holding that in place is a simple contract, then that's very fragile because that contract is only as strong as our respective readiness to invest money in enforcing that contract, which can be very expensive. Something like 30% of the global economy is the cost of trust. Contracts are a very expensive way of trying to get trust to work. Far better is that in my annual shareholder meeting and in your annual shareholder meeting, each of us has an appropriate balance of voting power in each other's shareholder meetings. So we're then truly starting to act as a connected ecosystem. We can engage in governance for the good of the ecosystem of companies as a whole over the long haul even it means for one company it's less extractive so that's the first thing and that means that it's to get both of those mechanisms in place and i describe how to do that in my book to get both of those mechanisms into place it's best if we're approximately the same size of course long term once it's a mature ecosystem, you will have businesses of all sizes. Just as in nature, you have everything from tiny fruit flies that live for a day. All the way through to sequoia trees that live for thousands of years and elephants and whales that are equally huge and long lived. So, is the work that you do,
0: other than kind of writing a book or in addition to writing a book, is it about putting these systems together?
1: Absolutely. So, the, the heart of the work we're doing now is we're running what we're calling our startup factory which provides startup creation, acceleration, and consulting services to startups and businesses in transition to implement everything we're saying. And we're working hard on building an investment vehicle, which is structured according to the same principles. So it's not an investment fund. It's more like a holding company. We're working hard on building that so that the vehicle invests into the members of the ecosystem and the limited partners or the investors into the vehicle are only investing into the ecosystem as a whole, which means that they have simplicity, they have high liquidity, they can exit when they want, all of these things because they're investing into a large, stable ecosystem. And inside the ecosystem, the individual businesses are going up and down and very exposed to the unpredictability. So our bet is that approach shuts away most of the causes of loss. And that means that we have far more available, which means that we can make the impossible normal. We can have something that is highly regenerative in all of the capitals, high positive impact, net positive and financially profitable for everybody concerned including the investors
0: are you looking for sort of startups to join this community or young businesses is there a kind of profile of where businesses might be on their journey which is the kind of which is is kind of right for your networks
1: yes we're absolutely looking for startups that have not even begun starting all the way through to startups that are well on their journey and are Keen to reincorporate. And even more so, what we're looking for are people who are, say, in a career at the moment. They may be in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, or even 60s, and who are saying, now's the time. We have to do something. I want to make my work count. I want to make my money matter. We have to build regenerative businesses and who are not necessarily of a founder mentality. They don't have a big idea that they are passionately committed to founding and they're willing to sacrifice everything just to make this idea happen. So a big part of our startup factory is bringing in people who want to work in startups. And we construct during our program an entire ecosystem of interrelated startups that then enter our ecosystem of companies as a complete subcircle of the ecosystem. So we're looking for people like that, definitely.
0: Where would people find out more about your ideas, these networks, how they might get involved, what they might do, who it's for, all of those sorts of things?
1: Absolutely. There are three places to look. One of them is to go to your local bookshop and order yourself a copy of my book, Rebuild the Economy, Leadership, and You. And it's written by myself, Graham Boyd, and my co-author, Jack Reardon. The second place to look for details of what we're actually doing and to register for our programs to get more information is our company website, evolute6.com, which is E-V-O-L-U-T-E-S-I-X.com. And the final place to look, and this is where you can sign up, for example, for our monthly webinar series around the book, is my personal website, which is graham-boyd.biz.
0: I think there is just something so just sort of compelling about the idea that actually things are better together which you know is the the kind of heart the essence of what you're talking about which of course we all know instinctively and intuitively and hopefully you know as in these kind of volatile uncertain times people actually look for those ideas which have stood the test of time
1: those two words better together that's been the essence of humanity since humanity first emerged on the planet And we lose our connection with that at our peril. And I really mean at our peril. What we might want to talk about, we haven't really touched on what do these ideas mean in terms of each of our lives as individual human beings. Why are we better together as groups of people? What does uncertainty mean for me as an individual human being? We focused mainly on business. So I simply put that in as a possibility for a second podcast.
0: I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Graham. Uh, If you did, maybe check out the conversation with uh, economist Mark Anielski. Um, I came to Graham's work via Mark, so lots of overlaps there you might enjoy. And as ever, if you like this and like the work that we're doing, please share it. That is the lifeblood of this journey, this adventure, is sharing. So if there's somebody who you think might benefit from what we're doing. If there's somebody who you think might also be a little bit inspired by some of the work that we are covering, then please share it. That's what we are all about. Uh, thank you for your time thank you for your interest if you want to check out more of these go as ever to the website buddhaontheboard.com you'll find everything about peripheral thinking on there go have a look you can sign up subscribe to the mailing list and we will let you know of each new episode which comes out until then thank you and goodbye